Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, this morning, uh, we are in part three of our seven-part sermon series that we've entitled, Including the Excluded. And in this seven-part series, uh, we are looking at Jesus' ministry in the third gospel, and that would be the gospel of Luke. And so, I'll begin by reminding us that there are four gospels that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, The four gospels tell us the story of Jesus. They narrate the story of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' life, his ministry, his teachings, his death and resurrection. And while all four Gospels, in their own way, draw attention to Jesus' ministry with outsiders, with the marginalized, with excluded people, Luke's Gospel especially does this. I know I've said this several times already, uh, but some scholars of the Bible like to refer to Luke as the Gospel of Nobodies. Uh, Because in Luke, the nobodies of this world the poor, the uneducated, uh, the mentally ill, the sick, the demon-possessed, those with bad reputations, convicted criminals, those who are seen as immoral, uh, the nobodies of this world are lifted up and they are given a place to belong in the family of God. And here's the general format of these sermons. Uh, Here's the general format that we're following. First, We're looking at these stories in their historical context, their scriptural context, and then from there, we're asking ourselves this question. How do these stories in Luke speak God's truth into our lives, even out today as 21st century people in the year 2022? Because folks, the reality is, and I don't need to to convince you of this, you know this to be true, the reality is that there are excluded people today. There are people living on the margins. There are people who feel like nobodies. And as a church, we're called to do something about this. We're called to reveal to these people that they're not nobodies, that they are somebodies, that they are children of God, that they are people of worth and value for whom Jesus came. Now, we are in part three of this seven-part series. We're going to finish up the series on Easter. And so far in these messages, we've looked at two stories. First, we looked at the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, and we saw how Jesus' entry into the world as a vulnerable baby, as a tiny infant, involved the excluded. And then last week, uh, we looked at Jesus' healing of a man with leprosy, how Jesus reached out and he touched the man with leprosy. Jesus touched the man whom other people had deemed untouchable, And by doing that, Jesus gave this man the intimacy and the affection that he craved and the depth of who he was. The story that we're going to look at this morning um, involves another excluded person. And the reason this person was excluded was her reputation. She was considered to be a sinful or an immoral person. Now, to set the context, this story takes place Uh, in Luke chapter 7. Now, does anybody know 
How many chapters are in the Gospel of Luke? 24. Good job, Terry. 24 chapters. And so if we're in Luke 7, we're almost a third of the way through the Gospel of Luke. And so Jesus is moving along in his public ministry as an adult. Uh, Luke chapter 7. And in this story, uh, what happens is Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee named Simon. Uh, He's at this dinner party, and there's other people there, presumably other Pharisees. And what happens? Well, lo and behold, this woman with a bad reputation who was seen as immoral, uh, in fact, we assume that she was a prostitute, and I'll say more about that in a moment, but she just crashes the party. And this gets the host, Simon, who's invited Jesus to his house for dinner, really upset. And to truly understand why Simon gets so upset, we first have to understand a bit about the Pharisees. So who were the Pharisees? I'm so glad you asked that question. (laughs) Well, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders in Jesus' day, and their main task was to interpret the law. Uh, In many respects, the Pharisees were lawyers. They were people who were experts in the law. Uh, The Pharisees has studied the law of Moses. The law of Moses is comprised of the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament. What are those books? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the law of Moses, also known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Well, the Pharisees had studied the law of Moses, these five books, first five books of the Bible. They knew the law of Moses like the back of their hand. And they would determine how the law of Moses might apply in a particular situation. So, to give us an idea of how this works, the law of Moses says that as a Jewish person, you are not permitted to work on the Sabbath. In fact, that's the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt honor the Sabbath, the day of rest. Don't work on the Sabbath. However, the law of Moses also states that if you have a baby boy... That baby boy is to be circumcised when he's how old? Eight days old. So here's a question. What do you do if the eighth day of the, baby's boy's, of the baby boy's life happens to fall on the Sabbath? Do you postpone the circumcision to a different day, or do you perform the circumcision regardless? How many of you think you postpone the circumcision to a different day? Okay, not many of you. How many of you think you perform the circumcision regardless? Okay, most of you think that. Some of you just aren't raising your hand, and that's fine. (laughs) Well, the Pharisees, who were the experts in the law, they read the law of Moses, and they said, you perform the circumcision anyway. So for those of you who raised your hand when when I said, do you perform the circumcision anyway? Good job, you get an A. They said, you perform the circumcision anyway because circumcision is a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And so circumcision trumps Sabbath. The only reason you would not perform the circumcision on the eighth day is if the baby's life is in jeopardy. Uh, If that's not the case, then you perform the circumcision even if the circumcision happens to fall on the Sabbath. And so, in a nutshell, this is what the Pharisees did. They interpreted the law. But then along with this, the Pharisees came up with additional rules and additional regulations to make sure that the law was being properly observed. And what's even worse is that the Pharisees said that if you didn't follow all these rules and regulations, 
then you weren't really following God, and you weren't being a follower of God. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and the Pharisees had all these rules and regulations, and that's what they were telling people. You're not following God if you're not following all these things. And so, in a lot of ways, the faith that the Pharisees promoted was a faith marked by legalism. What is legalism? This is my definition of legalism. Legalism is excessive adherence to rules. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. It's not that rules are bad. I'm a fan of rules. I'm a person who likes order, organization. I'm a proponent for rules. But legalists tend to focus more on rules than they do on people. And most, if not all the rules that they create, have little or nothing to do with following God. Uh, some of us know that John Wesley, uh, the founder of the Methodist movement, that John Wesley struggled with legalism early on in his ministry as a pastor. In fact, uh, Wesley was born in 1703, well over 300 years ago. And in the year 1735, when Wesley was 32 years old, um, he was sent as a missionary here to America. He had lived in England, grew up in England, but he was sent as a missionary to America. Now, this was, again, 1735. This is well before the founding of our nation. And so the people who lived here were Native Americans, and they were colonists. And he was sent to the colony of Georgia. But at the time, Wesley had a faith that was very much marked by legalism. He thought the more rules you have, the better. So one of the first things John Wesley did, when he came here to America, when he landed on the shore, well, the journey from England to America took months. Uh, and at one point, they thought that they were going to die in the ship because of a bad storm. Thankfully, they were okay. Well, Wesley took all the rum that was on the ship that the sailors had brought specifically to celebrate their safe arrival in America. They did not drink this rum because they wanted to save it until they were in America. Well, without telling anybody, without asking anybody, Wesley took all the rum. You know what he did? Threw it in the ocean. How do you think the sailors reacted? Yeah, he threw it in the ocean because he thought that drinking alcohol was immoral. Well, the sailors did not react well. And keep in mind that a lot of these sailors were going to be members of his church. He was going to be their pastor. And so they were not off to a good start. And then to make matters worse, he gets to the church in Savannah, Georgia, and he said, okay, every morning we're going to have a prayer service at 5 a.m. Now, if Pastor Will and I said that we're going to have a prayer service here at Asbury at 5 a.m., how many of you would come? Nobody would come? Pastor Will, would you come? You'll be there, all right. Well, not very many people came to the prayer service that John Wesley had at 5 a.m., and that kind of upset him. And so he said, all right, well, if you don't come to the prayer service, then you can't receive Holy Communion on Sunday morning. And so this faith that he was promoting, it was a faith defined by legalism, by all these rules. And, and thankfully, he grew out of that. Uh, God did some work in his life, and, and he matured beyond all that. But going back to the Pharisees, what the Pharisees did was similar to Wesley. They just alienated people with all their rules and regulations. And the sad thing is, they were okay with that. They were fine with that because in a lot of ways, they saw themselves as morally superior to the people around them, as better than the people around them. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word Pharisee means separated one. 
separated one. And far too many Pharisees took that definition literally. They would separate themselves from the people around them, especially the people that they considered immoral, sinful. And then along comes Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Well, not only does Jesus reinterpret the law that the Pharisees had interpreted, not only does Jesus call out all their rules and all their regulations, but on top of all that, Jesus associates with the very people that the Pharisees refused to associate and hang out with. Listen with me to these words from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this is Luke chapter 15, uh, verses 1 and 2. This was the chief charge uh, made against Jesus by the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. I love that phrase, notorious sinners. Do we have any notorious sinners in worship today? You don't have to raise your hand. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was doing what? Associating with such sinful people. Even eating with them. Oh. So, it's not even that Jesus would associate with people deemed to be sinners, but he would associate with them in one of the most intimate ways that you can associate with somebody. He would sit down at the table. He would break bread, have a meal with them, have a conversation with them, share life with them. This is not something that a man of God does according to the Pharisees. And so, folks, with this information in mind, I know this was a long introduction to this morning's Scripture passage, but with this information in mind, we can begin to understand why Simon the Pharisee gets so upset, not only when this immoral woman comes into his house, but by Jesus' reaction to her being there. And so that brings us to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we're going to start in verse 36. Uh, this story is found, I believe, in verse 36 through verse 50. Uh, we're not going to read the entire story in worship today, but I would encourage you at some point this week to read the story on your own. Uh, I'm going to do my best to summarize it. This is Luke uh, 7, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees, and again, his name was Simon, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, I want you to notice those words, reclined at the table. We're going to revisit them. A woman in that town who lived the sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, that is Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man, talking about Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. Of all the scenes in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of all the scenes in the Gospels, this is one of the most controversial. Do I have your attention now? What happens here in this passage would have been unheard of in Jesus' day. 
Now, as Luke begins this story, he tells us that what Jesus is doing as he's at Simon's house is he's reclining at the table. Reclining at the table. Now, what does that mean? Is he leaning back in his chair? Well, it's helpful for us to know that in Jesus' day, there was a form of table that was often used. In fact, if you were a wealthy person, if you were a person of financial means who would like to entertain people, you probably had this table in your house back then. It was called a triclinium. A triclinium. Of course, tri means three, and so a triclinium has three parts. It was a U-shaped table, and people would lounge around, lounge around it. And they wouldn't be sitting down in chairs. Instead, they would be sitting on the floor on a cushion like this, can you see this? With their feet dangling out behind them. Um, obviously, this was a very intimate space. Uh, you were incredibly close to the people around you. This was not a good table to practice social distancing. Uh, and we know a lot about that, having lived through COVID these past couple of years. In fact, men and women, unless they were married, they didn't sit together at a table like that. That was way too intimate. And then here comes this woman, but not simply a woman, but the town prostitute, presumably. Now, we're not 100% certain if that's what she was. Instead, Luke simply says that she was an immoral person or she had lived a sinful life. But typically in that culture, whenever the word immoral or sinful was associated with a woman, it most always meant prostitute because there were less opportunities for women to be seen as sinful or immoral. Uh, they weren't able to embezzle money, for example. They couldn't be tax collectors. So usually when the word sinful or immoral is used when talking about a woman, it meant that she was a prostitute. So here the Pharisees have spent their entire careers separating themselves from people like this. And then here comes this woman. And it's not even that she sits in the corner of the room. Where does she come? right at the feet of Jesus, this man who claims to be of God. We can understand why this scene is so controversial. And there are three things that she does here, according to Luke. This woman is so filled with emotion to be in the presence of Jesus that the first thing she does is she begins to weep at Jesus' feet. Simon the host had practiced poor hospitality. He had done nothing to wash the feet of Jesus when Jesus came into his house. And so Jesus' feet are all dirty and gross, but this woman's tears are so profuse that they literally wash away the dirt and the muck caked on Jesus' feet. And then the second thing she does is she lets down her hair. Now, letting down your hair was a scandalous thing for a woman of the night to do because typically a woman of the night would let down her hair when she was with a client. This woman lets down her hair in front of all these religious men, but she doesn't do it in some sort of sexual way. Instead, she does it out of concern for Jesus because Jesus' feet have all these tears and all this dirt, and so she uses her own hair to wash away the dirt and the tears on Jesus' feet. And then the third thing she does and she takes this alabaster jar filled with costly perfume. Uh, some scholars estimate 
that this perfume might have cost as much as $30,000 by our standards today. This was probably her entire life savings. You remember back then, people didn't put their money in banks. They didn't put their money in investment accounts or anything like that. Instead, they typically put their money in land or in something expensive like perfume that later they could sell. So this woman takes literally everything that she owns, she just breaks open the jar, pours the perfume all over Jesus' feet. We could just imagine that the odor from the perfume just rising, penetrating everybody's nostrils in this intimate space. Now, most of us, when we read this passage, we see all this as a beautiful sign of love and commitment and devotion, but that's not how Simon saw it. That's not how the Pharisees saw it. Listen again to verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, in other words, saw what the woman had done, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon's enraged. He's ticked off. He's mad that Jesus doesn't put his foot down and send the woman away. So Jesus, as he so often did, he responds with a story. Simon, let me tell you something. Tell me, teacher. There were two men. Both of these men owed money to a moneylender. Now, the first man owed a debt of about 50 days' wages. The second man owed a debt of about two years' wages. 50 days' wages, two years' wages. However, this moneylender, out of his grace and compassion and generosity, he just forgave both debts. Right like that. Which of these two men do you think was more grateful to have his debt forgiven? And Simon says, well, the answer is obvious. The guy who had a bigger debt. And Jesus basically says, Simon, don't you get it? That people who have been forgiven much, love much, and this is true, isn't it? That the more aware we become of God's forgiveness of us, the more gratitude that begins to, to bubble up from within us. I remember some years ago, I went to a conference where I heard this well-known pastor speak. And the pastor shared that one time he went to a state prison in Louisiana. In fact, it was one of the most notorious prisons in the entire state. A lot of these guys had been convicted of serious crimes like murder. They were serving life sentences. They were probably never going to leave that prison. However, during their time in prison, uh, a lot of these inmates uh, gave their hearts and their lives over to God. They became Christian. They became followers of Jesus. And God began to do some incredible transformative work in their souls. And so the pastor goes to a worship service at this prison. And he later said to the warden, I have never been to a service like this before, where the people just worship God with such energy, such excitement. Nobody's checking their watch. Nobody's wondering when the service is going to be over. They're just worshiping God. They're in the moment with such energy, emotion, passion. What's the secret to a service like this? He asked the warden. What's the secret? I wish I worship God like this. I wish the people of my church worship God like this. What's the secret? And the warden responded with just four words. Forgiven much, worship much. Forgiven much, worship much. Folks, the truth is, we have all been forgiven of our many sins. But sometimes, like Simon the Pharisee, we forget just how much God has forgiven us. 
And so in turn, we have a hard time recognizing why God would extend that same kind of grace to somebody else. What I love about this woman is that she was smart enough to know that without Jesus, she was nothing. And so she gave Jesus everything. She was smart enough to know without Jesus, she was nothing. So she gave Jesus everything. That we would follow her example. The last piece I want to point out is that during this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisee, Jesus utters a line that is so moving that I want to make sure that we don't miss it. And it's found in verse 44. Then he, that is Jesus, turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? What an ironic question. Of course he sees the woman. She's right there in front of him. But he doesn't see this woman as anything more than her reputation, than the summation of mistakes that she's made. He doesn't see the unique child of God that is standing right there in front of him, or actually sitting right there in front of him. You know, the truth is, we don't know what this woman's story was. We don't know what led her to become a prostitute. For all we know, she could have been sold into slavery by her parents, which unfortunately was legal back then. Or maybe she was married at some point, and then her husband passed away, she was a widow, and she had no way to provide for herself other than by selling her body to men. We don't know what this woman's story was. But what we do know is that prostitute was not the defining mark of this woman. Sinner or immoral was not the defining mark of this woman. Instead, what defined her, what characterized her, was her identity in God. The fact that she was made and created by God, the fact that she was a child of God, the fact that God loved her in unbelievable ways. Simon didn't see this woman who was right there in front of him. So here's the question I want us to ponder today. Who are the people that we're not seeing? Is it the homeless person on the side of the road asking for some change? Is it the immigrant or the refugee who comes looking for a better life? Is it the clerk at the grocery store who maybe is going slower than we would want them to? Is it the widow who lives across the street from us? Is it the kid down the road who sometimes makes trouble? Is it the quiet person at the office? Is it the person who's sitting next to us in worship this morning? Who are the people that we're not seeing whom God is calling us to see? There was a rabbi who once asked his pupils how they could know that the day has begun and the night has ended. How do you know when the day has begun and the night has ended. And one pupil raised his hand and he said, could it be when you can look off in the distance and you can tell whether an animal is a sheep or a dog? Is that how you know that the night has ended and the day has begun? And the rabbi said, no. Well, could it be, another pupil said, when you look off in the distance and you can tell when a tree is a peach tree or a fig tree? Is that how you know that the day has begun and the night has ended? The rabbi said, no. Well, what's the answer? The students asked. The rabbi said, the answer is, when you can look in the face of any human being and recognize that person as a brother or a sister and a child of God, that's how you know that the night has ended 
and the day has begun. Simon was living in the night until Jesus opened his eyes. May God and Jesus open our eyes to the excluded around us, to the unnoticed around us, so that we might see all people as children of God and treat them as such. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this uh, service of worship. Thank you for the scripture passage that we have looked at today, how in Jesus you have indeed come to include everybody. Give us eyes to see the unnoticed around us, to treat them with dignity and respect. Help us to radically welcome all people into your family. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.